This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 5th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. President Obama is pushing a grand bargain on tax reform, but history suggests that grand bargains often fail to deliver promised spending cuts. Jeff Myron, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, offers his thoughts. The new grand bargain that President Obama has announced in the past few days involves his agreeing to a cut in the corporate income tax rate. The number I've seen in the headlines has been from 35% to 28%, although that's presumably up for negotiation, in exchange for Republicans agreeing to a number of policies that Democrats like. One is a minimum wage uh, hike, in addition to the ones we've had recently, and the others are additional spending programs, such as on jobs, uh, retraining, and things like that. So we had I guess something of a of a grand bargain in 1986 with regard to tax reform. Uh, tax rates did not rise, but a bunch of loopholes were eliminated, and this was uh, broadly bipartisan. It was. I think the way I think about that is that Reagan cut taxes. Reagan and Congress cut taxes in the early 1980s. Okay. One of the arguments was that tax cuts would starve the beast; that those big decreases in revenue would force Congress to limit spending. It turns out that, and it would be nice if that were true <laughs> for libertarians, but the evidence doesn't seem to back it up. So Bill Niskanen, one of Cato's founders, examined this a couple decades ago and found that after Congress cuts taxes, within a few years, it raises them back up again. So they don't really cut spending. They just raise taxes later to make up for the lost revenue. Two economists at UC Berkeley, Christy Romer and David Romer, examined this again a few years ago. They come from a very different part of the political spectrum, but got exactly the same conclusion. The tax cuts do not empirically seem to starve the beast. So I think this is really a Trojan horse for libertarians or Republicans. They're going to get, if they go through with this bargain, some modest tax relief now, but have to sign on to additional expenditure that they oppose, and the tax relief won't last. That's what happened in the 80s. After Reagan did these big tax cuts in the early 80s, he came back and agreed to tax increases uh, later in the decade. So uh, if, if I'm trying to plot out the future of federal spending in my mind and make the federal government credibly commit to a path of, of reduced spending over time, something that might actually look like what Paul Ryan was doing in terms of uh, federal spending declining as a share of GDP, uh, how much stock should we put in the idea of a balanced budget amendment as part of that bargain? Is that, I mean, is that a credible check on federal spending? I have not seen evidence and I am suspicious on a priori grounds that balanced budget amendments do a good job of constraining, constraining spending. The reason is that if you haven't changed the attitudes of the, of the voters about how much spending they want, their representatives in Congress are going to try to give them the spending that they want, and they'll find gimmicky ways to do it. They will have off-balance sheet entries that allow them to keep spending. There will be other sorts of accounting gimmickry that allow them to expand spending. The huge expansion in unfunded pension liabilities for state and local employees is one way that state and local budgets maintain the fiction of balanced budgets, okay, but in fact have grotesquely imbalanced budgets. So I think the only way to get to a lower spending path is if People who advocate that, like us, can convince more people that we have a point, that we are right, that the level of spending is unsustainable and in most cases is counterproductive in the first place. Unless we do that, unless the voters want lower spending, I'm afraid we're probably not going to get lower spending. Okay. Well, I, 
I've heard many times uh, from different people some sort of catchphrases. Or it's like basically we've all agreed to have massive welfare states and not pay for them. Uh, in this case of states, it's we've agreed to have these big generous state pensions for workers and not pay for them. And uh, when I'm asked what I would I prefer uh, Republican spending policies to Democratic spending policies, the choice is between tax and spend and borrow and spend, and. Uh, I grudgingly say, well, I prefer tax and spend because at least the pain is now. I guess you can make an argument in that direction. But remember that if you impose the taxes now instead of accepting you're going to have to impose them later, it means you're getting the distortionary effects of the taxes for sure now. If you borrow and spend, then there's some chance you'll come to your senses and restrain the spending later and not need to raise the taxes as much. So I think you could argue it in the other direction. But that just fits perfectly in my general view is our phrase should be, it's the expenditure stupid. We really, really, really have to get people to think about how horrible the expenditure is. All the other good things that might happen, broad-based tax reform, whatever, can only happen easily or in a reasonable way if we're financing a much lower level of expenditure. I would say that the only reason I might prefer tax and spend is an idea in which there are constraints on the ability to tax. One of those might be economic growth. One of them might be a debt limit. Uh, one of them could be a balanced budget amendment. That's all fine. I, in terms of the balanced budget amendment, haven't seen any research papers that have found evidence that those are particularly effective. A different point in your direction, I think, is to say if voters are faced with tax and spend, then it's explicit, it's obvious that they're going to pay for it now. Whereas if it's borrow and spend, they can somehow pretend that little fairies will come in and pay for it later. So maybe they will vote for slightly less spending if they're made more aware by having to pay for it with taxation now. But passing a law that tries to enforce that doesn't seem to be especially effective. Okay, what, what, what countries have tried this and uh, what have been the results? Well, it's mainly the example I'm thinking of are states. Um, I'm also thinking, uh, and, and there we just talked about it, states have had balanced budget, balanced budget amendments in most cases for decades, and yet they've run up these huge unfunded liabilities, so they haven't really had balanced budgets. Um, but there are also many other examples of attempts to use an institution or a rule or a law to constrain behavior at the level of a country or whatever. And then again, and again, those do not seem to have worked. So another example is central bank independence. The claim is if you set up a central bank so it has a very clear mission of, say, price stability, and it's kept independent of the Treasury and the federal government, it will achieve low inflation. The data don't back it up at all. So I think it's hard to get people, countries to do what you want them to do just with these apparently free approaches like passing a balanced budget amendment. There is no free lunch. We actually have to cut the spending. Otto von Bismarck is said to have crafted one of the first warfare welfare states. And one of the my, my friend John Utley at the American Conservative likes to say, uh, you have a faction for a certain kind of spending, supporting the faction for the other kind of spending, grudgingly, but they do so in order to get the spending they want. And I think about Rand Paul in his first speech in the Senate was talking about compromise, what compromise might look like. And in his world, compromise looks like I agree to your spending cut if you agree to mine. And so the, the thing that he's pushing is basically, you know, yeah, we should cut the Pentagon. We should cut defense spending. And in exchange, we cut your programs too. So I'm totally on board with that. I, certainly, I think most libertarians I think are. Most libertarians are. Um, unfortunately, I think the way that 
congressional districts have been gerrymandered, it will be very hard to get enough Republicans to vote for that kind of bargain, even though they like part of it. They like the cuts in, say, entitlements, but they're not going to be happy uh, with the cuts in defense because in their districts, voting for cutting defense is not going to be a winner. Jeff Myron is a senior fellow with the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.